This is Marketing Then and Now, a talk and tell with Bozell where we talk with experts about trends and practices, current and tried and true, and we tell you how to implement them in your own marketing strategies. It's Marketing Then and Now, now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bozell's Marketing Then and Now. My name is Jim Mingi and I am the host. Today we have Kim Mickelson. Kim Mickelson is one of the owners of Bozell, and we're going to be talking to her about all kinds of interesting things. But first, Kim, I wanted to ask you, Bozell has, has been around for quite some time, been involved in some of the most memorable ad campaigns uh, the country's ever seen. And, and one of them that I was interested in asking you about is Pork, the Other White Meat. Um, very successful campaign, very well-known campaign. Tell me about your involvement with that and if you have any interesting uh, insight into that campaign. Well, it shows my age because I definitely have been around a while. I wasn't at Bozell when it was first created, but was involved as it launched out. Um, but the stories of its creation are quite interesting because at the time, chicken uh, was really perceived as healthy, whereas pork was perceived as unhealthy. You had to cook it to the consistency of shoe leather <laughs> for fear of trichinosis, sure, right? Sure. So um, trying to change that perception is pretty tough. Uh, kind of agency lore on its creation is that as they were sitting around really struggling with the positioning of it, they started looking at um, literature, various different literature, dictionary, Somebody looked up pork and it said a white meat. And it was like, aha, because in essence, when you visually see pork, it is a white meat, right? Sure. Um, so the that was kind of the genesis of how the whole positioning started was, what if it's the other white meat um, to kind of go head to head with chicken? And really repositioning it. Now, the whole industry had been really re reworking the um, the nature of the product, right? And how the, the fat level content and the producers had really mm -hmm. been kind of focusing on that. So it wasn't accurate the way consumers perceived it. It wasn't accurate to reality of what the product was. Yeah. So, you know, it, my involvement ranged from working on the campaign to participating in something called the barbecue lasso, which was a giant barbecue over in Des Moines okay. and it put on by the pork producers. There was a parade and uh, recipe contests and people there with smokers and grills and campers and oh, now I'm getting hungry. creating all kinds of fun things around pork. Interesting. Okay. Um, one of my first experiences at the barbecue lasso was being shocked as pig blood was thrown on the pork queen <laughs> during the parade. So it was quite dramatic. And I thought, oh my gosh. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy. So we did all kinds of things. You know, of course it was all traditional advertising, but there was also a lot of kind of experiential type of marketing involved okay. with the repositioning of that product. And as we know, that thing has been written up case study after case study as a repositioning of a product. So, ah. I wonder if they still have that celebration. Well, I do think they do have a barbecue <laughs> lasso, but I'm not sure if there's a pork queen anymore. So, <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, another one I, I wanted to ask you about uh, is uh, the milk mustache. 
uh, Bozell was uh, involved with with helping create that campaign. Um, and that's another, I mean, very memorable campaign, the Milk yes. Mustache. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, think about it for, for those people who are a little bit older. We grew up in a time where it was drink your milk, drink your milk, drink your milk, particularly boomers, right? Um, the development of all kinds of other products and all kinds of other options. I mean, we were sick and tired of milk and we kind of rebelled saying, we're not going to make our kids do this. Consumption really started to drop mm. as the dairy industry was, you know, kind of trying to figure out how do we turn this? That was kind of where Bozell entered the, the picture with a group called Milk Pep on the East Coast. And the reality was, no matter which way we dug into it, no matter what we looked at, no amount of logical sales information about the value of the product seemed to have an impact on consumer perception. In the end, and books have been written about this, um, there's a lot recorded in our Bozell history about this. In the end, the strategy really boiled down to if we can't figure out a way to make milk perceived as cool, there wasn't a chance of getting those messages through the kind of the whole perceived of, oh, no, milk. Um, so we had to turn perception first. So the, um, the creative directors and the folks working on that, really what they did was a tactic that is fairly common in our industry, borrowed interest. How do you find, you could be cool by leveraging cool people. So the Milk Mustache sure. campaign okay. was born. Annie Leibowitz was the photographer. I mean, talk about cool. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, of course. So um, Naomi Campbell was the very first person put in a Milk Mustache Very cool, ad. of course. She was super cool. Yeah. And instead of trying to say, milk is good for you, it was, milk is cool. And the initial tagline was, where's your mustache? And so the idea was... The milk mustache was sort of born, and it was born as a visual campaign, not a television campaign, but really a visual campaign that ended up taking on a poster-esque kind of art feel to it. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And art, art in the sense that you wanted to collect those. I, I remember, correct. you know, seeing, and, and, you know, do I have so-and-so or do I have so-and-so? And, and you'd start to collect those. Correct, because there were thousands. Yeah. There were literally thousands of them. We have a book here that has probably at least eight or nine hundred oh of the of the copies. So it, you know, it became a very powerful campaign. Ultimately, it merged with another initiative, the Got Milk campaign. And you started seeing later versions of the Milk Mustache campaign with the slogan Got Milk, which, okay. of course, has become a cultural icon. Absolutely. You know, very, very much in our cultural vernacular. Got yeah. beer, got Jesus, yep. you know, yep. whatever. Yep. yep. You got something, right? Yeah. Well, it seems like the, the milk and dairy industry could use another campaign like that, competing with, you know, soy and almond and oat and all the different kinds of milks now. I mean, they're hurting. Yeah. It's now, again, this is where we are, we're getting kind of a new normal in business. The traditional, what we consider to be direct competitors, um, has, has broadened drastically. Now we've got a lot of indirect competitors. Whoever thought they'd make milk out of nuts? Yeah. 
You know, couldn't even visualize that 20 years ago, right? How do you milk a nut? Exactly, right? <laughs> That's what my dad would have said. Yeah. So today, the, the, the sheer volume of competitors has made being clear in your positioning even more important. Yeah. Even more important. Yeah. The, just the volume of advertising and marketing we see everywhere. You can't even escape it at a gas pump. You know, you sit there yeah. and there's a little video running while you're pumping your gas. Yeah. Um, it's everywhere. It's in the dentist's office. And um, it's on people's bodies. And it's in the street. And it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay, that was a little bit about uh, Bozell then. Um, let's talk about some now. I know uh, in the uh, latest episode of Thinking Magazine that, that Bozell publishes quarterly, uh, you covered a topic uh, on shopping habits and brand loyalty. And so I wanted to have you, you know, and you also had a, you did some research and had a study done. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, uh, maybe start with uh, the shopping habits. Um, we all shop. So talk about, you know, shopping habits between men and women, uh, maybe, you know, Generation Z versus boomers and how they differ and, and how marketers uh, need to target them as, as different segments. Well, as you said, we undertook a, a little research study or commissioned a little research study just to dive into this to see how much has it been changing? What are the, the realities? Do some of the common... Um, perceptions hold about how men and women shop and we found some truth in some of the the age-old beliefs that you know women like to shop more than men there was we definitely saw that play out in much of our research but what we were trying to really dig into is when they do shop how brand loyal are they given this new normal we're all up against with all these competitors all these messages all the media channels that are out there, all of the issues that come into play and the way consumers look at companies, products through their own lens of personal experience or their own lens of beliefs, what kind of, how does loyalty fit today? Where does it work and how does it, how does it play out? We found some things that I think I found interesting. Men in our survey tended to be a little more brand loyal than women. Mm. Um, and part of it seemed to be the mindset of, if I'm looking to shop, I'm in, out, and on my way. And so unless you can really catch me with something that says this is a better product, not just a lower price, yeah. prices always sat on one side of the scale and on the other side is set all the things that create value, whether it's your product design, your availability, what all the other intangibles. I think for many, many years, too many businesses have figured price is so important that if I can weight that part of the scale by discounting, I can drive brand loyalty. What our study showed is that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I think you yourself talked to some friends and even at a 20% differential in price, Eh, maybe not enough to make sway me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's always been an issue, but it's probably even a bigger issue for marketers now because of the sheer volume of choices out there. And how do you maintain brand loyalty? And more importantly, how do you get it? Yeah. How do you even break through to get it? Yeah. 
if people are loyal to a product and if price is less important to them, how do you convert them to your product? Especially men. I, I think there might be a little bit of stubbornness, sure uh, you know, playing into that and ego. Mm-hmm. This is my brand. It's the best brand because that's the brand I buy. I'm not going to switch. Well, that's like I know what's going on here. Right. Yeah. And I'm not susceptible to advertising. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. That's every man I've ever talked to. <laughs> so then, then I laugh at my husband who then comes home with some cool packaging that he bought somewhere. Because isn't this cool? And I'm like, yeah, and you're not susceptible to marketing. Impulse right? buy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so what, let's see. What kind of a shopper are, are, are you? I'll, I'll go first. I'm, I'm the type I like. I love Amazon. I love shopping online because of the convenience. But if I do have to go to a brick and mortar store, I'm kind of what you alluded to. I'm in and out. I mean, I'm like Mario Kart. I got my shopping cart and I'm playing Mario Kart. I'm going straight to that aisle, straight to that product. I'm not even, I have blinders on. I'm not looking around at any kind of flashy things because I guess I know if I do, I'm susceptible to impulse buying too. And I'll, I'll buy it. I just, I just, but I just want to go for that one thing, get out of there and get out of that parking lot as fast yeah. as I possibly can. A lot of truth to that. Yeah. I, and we did see that play out in our survey that there was that kind of mentality. The impact of online buying has really changed things in terms of maybe many of our necessities were ordering through Amazon prime or through our grocery store. And then where does shopping fit? If we are going out to stores, where does it fit? How does it engage people? How does it connect to you, Jim? How does it, how do, how do they grab you to a point where you maybe would think about another option? It's become about experience, right? It's not necessarily about the item. It's about the experience. Now, I'm a shopper who I buy a lot online too. I prefer to have my groceries delivered. I, but when I do shop, I'm shopping more for discovery. So I'm very different than you. It's like, oh, oh, that's interesting. I had no idea that was out there. That's a cool product. I'm looking to discover. So to me, experience becomes even more critical because I'm not going to discover in a store that is poorly laid out, poorly lit, the parking lots, you know, a disaster. Um, So there's certain stores that I find just charming and attractive and they will keep my attention and those brands then become more appealing to me so shopping the whole experience and and quite honestly i don't know that we have developed any level of complete normal in terms of what the trends are or what the behaviors are for consumers because we've been in such a pattern of rapid change in terms of how we conduct commerce um, in this country from delivery models to e-commerce to sharing, I mean, all kinds of things. We're, we're seeing so much change, so many creations of new kinds of businesses like trading markets and ThreadUp and all kinds of companies that buying used used to be like, a you, yeah. right? And now yeah. it's become sort of the thing yeah. among millennials, Gen Z. Like, oh, absolutely. That's a cool thing, right? Consignment shops have taken on a different Well, and even world. even high-end products like Apple, a refurbished iPhone or a refurbished MacBook. Correct. You know? Ten years ago, that was sort of unheard of in terms of admitting that you did it. Yeah. But now it's become kind of a badge of honor. Yeah. So I don't know that we have arrived at any level of predictable new normal. I mean, we are in a constant state of 
Do you understand who your buyers are and who your desired buyers are? Trying to understand all consumers is all but impossible. But can you understand who your current buyers are and what makes them tick? And who your desired buyers are and what they desire that you could deliver? I think you nailed it with with that uh, experience. Giving them an experience and telling them a good story. I, I was thinking... Uh, I used to buy Coleman coolers all the time. And I think that's because my dad had Coleman lanterns and, and all the camping equipment. And those were the best coolers. And you couldn't sell me any other cooler unless it was a Coleman. But then you had Yeti come out with this a cool romantic, court. cool oh. story. And, you know, this this adventurous, you know, you, you, you say Yeti cooler and you automatically think, you know, up in the mountains in Colorado and camping and fishing. And it just, it really sold that experience. Sure. And so I switched. Right. And that's the whole idea of how, if you know who you are as a company and you know your story and you know your strength and you have your voice and you can develop your story and you can make that story really interesting, you attract people and you can identify people who would be most likely to buy your product and it resonates with them. Mm -hmm. And I think the struggle is we've gone from a time where there has been a tendency to try and be all things to all people. Yeah. To a time where an understanding is dawning that you're better to be something to someone than try to be everything to no one. So that understanding that our niche markets can be really powerful for us if we understand it. Now, Yeti by far is not the largest out there, but it's pretty sexy, right? Oh, and cool. They've done a really good job. The other, the other one, I mean, I'm a big hydro flask uh, man, uh, right? Uh-huh. Um, it didn't used to be, but really started trying out this product. And my experience has been so good with it that it's like now I've become very loyal. These are very expensive travel mugs, right? But it's my choice. In that survey, did you get into, I'm curious about um, social issues. Um, does this company, is this company eco-friendly? Is this company, uh, so how does this company feel on pro-life versus pro-choice? Um, are they, you know, how do they swing right or left when it comes to politics? I mean, do, do the we way did. that a, a brand stands on social issues make a, uh, make a difference? We did um, explore that a little bit. That's a, it's a big subject, right? Huge subject. We knew from pretty clear evidence out there that consumers' points of view, they were making brand choices based on their own personal beliefs and values. So we did dive into that. And indeed, we did see that. In fact, I think we were a little shocked at some of the numbers. I mean, the it was, it was a very large number of people in our survey said they would be impacted by, and their choice would be impacted by, the social stance of the brand in which they were purchasing that something like what it was 9% only 9% of people said they wouldn't be impacted. Mm. So it was a very large yeah. group that said, yes, if they differ greatly from my core beliefs and they advocate on that, it will impact my decision. Now, traditionally, and I guess up until 
just a couple short years ago, most brands tried desperately to stay away from controversial issues. Sure, they didn't. They didn't like, want to take a stance. Into, yeah, we don't want to offend we someone. Want, yeah, we don't want to get into we that. We want to be neutral, and that our role would be neutral, and that was the prevailing advice and what everybody wanted to do. The reality today is consumers say, "You either tell me how you what you where you stand on something." Or I go elsewhere to somebody that does. I mean, the demand is there to for companies to take a stand, mm -hmm. to be very transparent about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, in, in the times we're in right now, it has just that's become the new normal. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you know, I'm a huge Apple fan, right? I have bought their products for a very long time. There are some things that they've done that I'm like, mm, yeah. but it's not been enough to kick me off the train, uh -huh. right? But there's other brands where I found out what they're doing from an environmental standpoint. Things that maybe I'm not such a big fangirl of, uh -huh. you know, or that I wasn't so attached to emotionally. And I've changed brands because, no, I'm not going to support them. I don't want to be part of that. Um so that's where all consumers are. They're all in that space that I, it's me. These are things I'm buying. Therefore, I want it to represent me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're getting close to wrapping up here. I just want to have a, a, want to end with a quick three, quick three questions uh, that I wanted to ask you and, uh, and we'll, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Favorite advertisement of all time. You know, that's such a tough one because there are so many ads I love. I'm going to tell you about favorite from a perspective of it stuck with me the longest. Okay. Okay. And this was, and I don't even know what year this was. It was a Super Bowl spot for the Holiday Inn called Bob. Okay. And Bob, the whole scene is set. And for those of you older, probably remember this. The scene is set and they're walking into what's a high school reunion, right? Clearly a high school reunion. You see everybody talking. And... Pretty soon, people are talking. This woman is having a conversation. And pretty soon, the guy's looking at her and says, Bob? Bob had had a sex change. And it was for Holiday oh. Inn. And it was when Holiday Inn was trying to reposition themselves from the smell of chlorine and children running around screaming yeah. through the halls yeah. to being more of a business kind of thing. It was a bomb in the marketplace. I mean, it got panned. It was so controversial at the time. Oh. It got pulled. It ran like once. But I thought it was so gutsy. And it was actually so stunning that I thought about Holiday Inn differently from that on. Huh. Because I thought, if they're willing to go to that extreme to get this message across, maybe I should look at Holiday Inn again. Yeah. Because my perceptions of it were, it smells like chlorine yeah. and there's small children running everywhere. Yeah. And I never would have thought of them in a business context. Huh. But the spot was so amazing and gutsy at the time. I mean, today, that's somewhat tame. But when it ran, it was so jarring. And it is still one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, but my probably my personal favorite spot, because I thought it was so powerful, was the Apple 1984. Yeah, classic. Classic, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, how about if you could have lunch... With anybody who is maybe involved in advertising or marketing, 
who somebody who created a, an ad campaign that you uh, really appreciated. Uh, if you could have lunch with that person, living or dead, um, who would that be and why? Steve Jobs. Okay. Um, he thought so different, way out there, but how did he make it real? That's what I want to know is what is the trick to, because he made all of his dreams. He made these things happen. And that well, is so hard. I think do. you, I mean, you, you talked about it earlier. He was selling an experience. Right. And he was adamant about it. And I heard he was a nightmare about it, that he was difficult to work for. Uh, and he, he was incredibly demanding, but he's made a stellar product that broke the mold. And at first it wasn't accepted. I mean, Bozell was one of the early adopters of the next system, which he did when he left yeah, Apple. And sure. we were, we had that system and it was a Unix-based system, and I thought it was actually a pretty effective system. But, I mean, everything from the iPod to the, the Mac computers themselves to the iPhone. I mean, these are such sweeping developments that have basically changed our the way we work, the way we communicate, everything about it. And they're beautifully designed, wow. and yeah. they're wonderful. They're functional. I mean, I went away from an iPhone trying to be an anti, you know, like I need to be, and I hated it. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't swing back to the iPhone fast yeah. enough. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that leads into our next question. And this is a tough one because I know how much you love your Colorado Oasis. Mm -hmm. Which would you rather, which would you be willing to give up? Your phone, your precious iPhone, or your Jeep and your Colorado Oasis? You know, I'm at an age where at this point <laughs> I would pick the Oasis and the Jeep and I'd put the phone down. Yeah. It'd be hard for me to do, but uh, I'm at a point where, okay, get away from the screen and experience life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, it, it'd be tough. It'd it would. be tough. Because right now it's with me and I take yeah. photos of that. Uh -huh. <laughs> there you go. Yep. There you go. Well, hey, thank you, Kim, for sure. being with us on this episode of Bozell's Marketing Then and Now. My name is Jim Mingi. Until next time, I'm signing off from 2215 Harney Street, somewhere in Middle America. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Bozell's Marketing Then and Now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can listen to it anytime, anywhere. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. Oh, 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 oh,